Welcome back to the tasting room. This one's going to be a fun one. Usually I have to prep for these. Yeah. Like I want to research and I want to like see different interviews that my guests have done mm -hmm. and get to know them a little bit more if I didn't already. But sure. This fucker over here, I've, right. I've known, <laughs> I've known long enough where we're just going to have fun, and I'm glad you brought bread. I was hoping you would, so we'll yeah. dive into that. Sure, a little bit of bourbon that I've uh, poured the neck off of a few. It's actually been on a podcast before, but it's changed in flavor, so I wanted to try it again. Very nice. Is that I've, the one I grabbed from Deep Discount? It is. Nice. It, nice. it, it fit. Nice. Yeah. Perfect. So Trey Winkle in the house. Um, let's start with this. So. Yep. We were just listening to our friend Jared Jordan's podcast. Yeah. And he called you out. I will insert it here <laughs> so people know what I'm talking about, right. like right here. You and I have a lot of mutual friends who are farmers and food producers. And, and I got to thinking about Trey Winkle. Yep. And he's probably going to hate this one. Um, but <laughs> are you familiar with natural wine? I am. Okay. So uh, but for, explain for, for people. For the that, audience. Yeah. yeah. Um, Essentially, natural wine is everything from the initial farming all the way through production involves no additives, no manipulation, no anything. So basically, it you know it is the wine in its rawest form that goes through the you know functions of what you would have to do to actually call it wine. Um, so to me, that's all bullshit. Okay, so we had a chance to listen to a bit of it before we started. Mm -hmm. Do you have a retort? to his view and standpoint on the natural wine craze and phenomenon? I mean, yeah, to an extent. I think a lot of people who deal with fermentation on a daily or a regular basis would say the same thing. It's that, you know, one of my, the, one of my things that came up when, like meeting winemakers, a lot of them will say things like, you know, 90% of what happens on the vine is what happens in the bottle. And uh, most people will kind of uh, just attribute the fermentation process almost to secondary because wine with being as unique as it is where most people farm it, then they process it, then they ferment it, and then it goes into the bottle or, you know, a, a combination of that series. It's um, so much of the farming is uh, really um, paramount. And I, and I totally understand that. But the way that fermentation can change and heighten and just become a very specific time and place, it, um, I feel like it can elevate when people start to either change the dial just a little bit. Mm. So same thing with bread. I mean, you can ferment it in any crazy number of ways by adding more you know, natural yeast to it, less, let it ferment longer, let it ferment shorter. You can do a fast sourdough, long sourdough. These things uh, contribute to lactic acid production, flavor, uh, and a lot of other things. So when it comes to uh, things like natural wines and uh, capturing yeast from the air, which I think of whenever I think of natural wines is minimal intervention. You know, some people are real sticklers about the sulfur and things like that, which I'm not really so um, big on or really care too much about. Uh, the addition of sulfur bottling to mm -hmm. help with any gassy notes that could possibly be produced. But I mean, as far as um, your world of wine, I feel like there's a lot of people that are very conventional and very, um, not necessarily very conservative, but they're a little bit more conservative because of all the education that they've had to build 
in the wine world, which is massive compared to like, say the beer world, you know, mm. there's however many styles of beer, but, and there's different places to brew it. But if you're not capturing your yeast naturally, you're not going to get, um, I mean, there are, there are just a limited amount of yeast strains that I feel like brewers use, unless you're somebody like, you know, a Jake Miller or a Chase Healy or somebody who really kind of go outside the lines and really try to, um, help the the pro the end result um be uh, something even more than the the actual um wort itself so when it comes to wine i feel like you know a lot of people put a lot of uh, emphasis in what they've had to learn already and so they stand a little bit more on the conventional side of it whereas a wild or natural yeast or fermentation process I think can add things that are that are very untraditional and that are also very exciting. Mm. And that's not to say that all natural wine is great. Um, I was going to say we have to admit some natural wine is shit. Yep. And some people will just they'll yep. keep producing it because it's the mo it's you know the most natural way right. of doing it. Whereas you know when we're talking about bread production or things like that, the thing for me that I love about I love that sound. <laughs> the thing for me that I love about sourdough is its digestibility and it, the fact that it's it brings more nutrition to the person's body who gets to eat it. I can eat a, a sandwich made with sourdough and uh, not feel like I would have if I eat the same thing. Thank you very much. Uh, cheers and thank you for coming on. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Uh, with your traditional white bread, I'm not licking the roof of my mouth to get it off of there because there's already is that a thing with bad bread. Uh, with oh, with like white wonder bread, white, white bread. bread. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Okay, and the reason why is because there's lactic remember, acid in that. Dude, you just took me back to Every elementary school. Sandwich yeah, you've ever had when you put the fake cast bologna yep. and cheese, and you took a bite, and it was yep. on the roof of your mouth, and you're sitting there making that cat sound trying to get thought, it off. Oh, I just used the finger, yep. but I hadn't thought of that situation or whatever yep. in. Decades. Right. And right? try a piece of sourdough bread. You'll never have to do it because mm. the lactic acid in there and all the flavor, all the acidity, it builds up and it makes it your mouth water. And so it'll never stick to the roof of your mouth. Uh, also, there's different hydrations. And sure. Stuff like that. But, I want to definitely get into your, I want to say newfound love of bread, but I don't know if that's an appropriate. I mean, relatively new. I right. Guess. Yeah. Probably um, um, is seven, eight years. I'd okay. Say. So longer than I was thinking in my head, yeah. but still relatively new in the right. grand scheme of things. Um, you have to be flying high though, because farm bar mm -hmm. is open and rolling right. and I'm going to ask for your official title because I always fuck it up with people. So we'll get there in just a second, sure. but not only that your blues yeah. looked good, I would say, or good enough to get a one nil win. So they got the three points, right? They got Chelsea the got points. the three points. Another so, Chelsea fan yes. in, in the house. Um, go ahead. What is your official title right now with Lisa and with the farm bar? Uh, chef de cuisine. Okay. Yeah. So basically, uh, you know, more or less, that means that if Lisa were to step back and need to be at another restaurant, I could run the kitchen behind all, you know, basically she trusts me to, to be able to, uh, to do that. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. It's a great, great gig. Is that just at one location or is it between... Living Kitchen and Farm Bar. It's Living Kitchen and Farm Bar. Okay. Uh, we're still in the midst of trying to figure out, uh, you know, Living Kitchen as far as um, having both places up and running in the fall, mm. which just means hiring, creating more jobs is always a lot of fun. So that for me, finding like-minded people is, um, is, is kind of a, a big goal in that just because, I mean, you can, it's really, you can't teach someone to have passion and you can't teach someone to be excited about the ingredients that we work with. But mm. if they come in with that, you can teach them how to cook them sure. and what to expect and things like that. So, 
So yeah, I think that's where um, uh, Lisa and I see uh, eye to eye a lot on uh, people is uh, specifically trying to get a certain type of person into the kitchen and then from there trying to um, teach them the way that we approach food, food waste, flavor. It's not all about, you know, super big, rich, over-the-top things um, in large doses. It's If we ever do that, it's in, you know, smaller portion sizes, yeah. so that way you get a hint of it, and then it goes away, and the next one is as equally satisfying, but maybe a little bit more complex and things like that. And it's really just, um, I mean, in my opinion, and I, I know that this is like, this might sound a little arrogant, but I think it's cooking the right way, because we get to be very sustainable in our approach. We get to source from some of the best people um, in the area. And, uh, you know, we use so many local farmers and we use the whole animal. So it's um, always making us find new ways of being creative. I like to dig in and find people's why for what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. So your initial foray into the kitchen, love of being in the kitchen, did it come out of necessity because you needed a job and you just happened to find a job in the kitchen? Or was it growing up were you helping you know mom cook dinner or like where where did your initial if you think back your initial love of or kind of that spark right. when did it when did it come and why did it come i think that um even in like high school and whenever i was younger um food was always celebratory and we always uh which is also interesting because we basically ate the same thing for every birthday which was what spaghetti and meatballs okay <laughs> which my grandma, I think, started and then taught my aunt how to make it, taught my mom how to make it. So anytime we had a, um, a birthday party, it was like, okay, well, we're going to have spaghetti meatballs. Now we ventured out. My aunt will make Indian tacos or something like that. Um, but like, you know, food being a celebration. And then uh, for me, it was the, the alchemy of it and then the hands-on of it. I mm. love being able to use my hands. I love being able to take completely raw ingredients that's why i'm a little obsessive about making everything from scratch is see them in i mean you see flour in a powder form and then somehow you get to that going from a to z or a to b whatever you might want to call it is to me that that um that practice that precision that alchemy is a lot of fun and that's kind of what continues to drive me but like actually getting in the kitchen that was trevor's fault Trevor's fault. Tax been on the show. Yeah. Um, so were you a science kid though? Was that like your favorite? No, I'm, no, so I'm alchemy, just a terrible student. Right. So alchemy yeah. only applied in the kitchen, not yeah. in the classroom. And, and okay. at my pace, you know, I'm, fair, I'm fair. very much um, a, a student now, but having to learn in a way and in a facility that other people dictated constantly was always really hard for me to mm. uh, excel at. And then if I ever had questions, you know, certain teachers would just be like, you know, I'm done with your questions. Just, right. you know, go do whatever. Sit in the corner so, and read. Or, yeah, yeah, so yeah. it just became about football. And so that's the whole school. But, you know, whenever it came to the kitchen, you know, it was the, I think the first thing that I really loved making um, were like, you know, something as simple as a salad dressing. An emulsification, mm -hmm. that process to me is it changes it's a completely um unique texture than most things can be and it, it's a you know um fat suspended in protein and all these things you know with uh vinegars and uh, acidity and it's this thing that you have to balance and there's this understood ratio but you can mess with it and then you can there's just so many different ways that you can impart flavor yeah. and so being able to learn techniques became 
my big thing. And I love uh, technique-driven food, being able to take a an emulsion, for instance, and apply it in other different ways. Like it yeah. doesn't have to be just cold. It can be hot. And that can be used as a sauce for a steak or you know, whatever it might be, even a vegetable course to, mm. you know, add some, uh, some fat to that and help bring out that, uh, bright vegetal quality and balance it. Sure. What you said about the way you learn to, I mean, I think that's, that's something we could all learn uh, for no better use of a word, right? Because I think there's the societal norm of got to go to school, got to go to college, got to make these grades, got to right. do this. But for some people, it's just, it's not that sh you're dumb. It's not that you don't want to learn. It's not that you can't learn. Right. It's that you are wired in a way and not you, a universal you, but you're wired in a way in which the standard societal way of learning just doesn't click. Right. But that doesn't mean you can't learn. Cause I mean, yeah. like you said, you're always studying. I see all the cookbooks. I've right. bought half of them because you've recommended them. Right. It's, you know, so I, I just think that's a quality or just something that we could all especially those of us with kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have dogs, doesn't apply. Yeah. <laughs> you, have, you have daughters, you live in a sea of estrogen. Sure, I And do. so like, I mean, that's just a good thing for you to know as a parent, as you shepherd your kids, as they're growing, right. you know? Yeah, I mean, being able to cut some people some slack every once in a while versus mm -hmm. you're in an institution and this is the way that you have to do things. Not everybody learns at the same pace, uh, most certainly not by the same approach. So I'm like, for instance, this morning, um, I come downstairs and my daughter's in the kitchen and she is cooking breakfast. She's not, supposed to, she's not supposed to be in the kitchen and she's not supposed to be cooking breakfast. Do you want to say daughter's names? Which daughter was this? Oh, it's the oldest. It's okay. Vivian. Okay. Viv. Um, so, hey, Vivian. Uh, I had to get on to her, but I wanted to know what she was doing first because I, as a you know creative person or a creative wannabe person, um, am bound by all the things that I know that have been done before. And she's not. So her ideas are like crazy. So she was cutting a banana with a serrated knife and she was, I have these um, uh, ice cube trays that are rubber that I keep down in the freezer for whiskey. Well, this one was empty. She had it pulled out and she had the honey next to her. She was going to freeze blocks of cut up banana pieces in a honey cube. Kind of sounds delicious. It, I can't see how it wouldn't be. I mean, imagine that melting on a, on a pancake. But she had no um, inclination of huh. how much time it would take. Right. She, had no, she had no ceiling. So she was just creating. But the, like I'm the parent, and so I had to get on to her because mm -hmm. she could have cut her finger off and we could have been in the emergency room. And then you cut the up the banana and put it in the honey in the ice cube tray? No, no. Oh, come on. No. I, you got to uh, give her that satisfaction. No, I, I'm. That's that's the uh, the wonderful life of being a parent, especially of three girls, and the oldest being so strong willed. Is I have to figure out how to keep her um, her everything intact, but also understanding her place in the world, mm. being able to show people the respect that they deserve, and also being able to uh, be her true self or as much as she can be without, you know getting into trouble. Yeah. I feel like you and Christina do a good job at that. Well, thank you. We yeah. try, but it's, it's, I mean, it's hard sure. because I, all I wanted to do was figure out what, where her head was going next. Oh, you like, really, well, let's, just, let's be honest. What you really wanted to do is see how that frozen honey and banana tasted. I mean, I know what it would have tasted like. It's, it's just, I wanted to see, cause I knew she was going to do more yeah. because she doesn't just stop. Like right. we, it's, it's crazy when she may like, I have to use air quotes on all this stuff. When she makes a drink, 
she constantly gets citrus out of there and she's cutting a line in the in the lemon or the lime and she's putting it on the side of the rim or she's rimming a glass we're not at home like drinking margaritas and stuff like that like where does she see the stuff well we watch food shows all the time i was gonna say do you see a fire in her towards culinary things i mean it sounds like it if she's rimming glasses i mean yeah she is the she is her mother's daughter she is the ultimate hostess she anytime anybody comes over she wants to she has these stories that she has prepared she has all these things that she wants to show them she i mean she's she's got it all and you know she uh is so determined and is just ready at all times but yeah, I mean, she's constantly, any building that she sees that she likes the look of, she's like, I want to put a restaurant in there. There's mm-hmm. one right down the street. I want to put a restaurant in that building. I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, and then I start going into it where they're like, so, you know, who's going to be the chef? And she's like, oh, I'm going to hire an amazing team of chefs. And I'm like, okay, great. Whereas, you know, and then I keep going and right. keep playing. And I'm like, you know, at the end to, you know, give her a little jab, you know, well, do you have to pay all these people? How much are you going to pay them? I'll pay them $10. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, then you some, realize she's still a kid. Right. Here's some yeah. reality. And, um, but no, I mean, yeah, she definitely comes by it naturally with us constantly talking about food, the way that we source food for our house and in our jobs. You know, we always, ever since she was little, I had like back whenever I was at our bar, I had, a, I would have Wednesdays off. Well, Wednesdays was the farmer's market. In, during the summertime. Sure, and yeah. so I would take her out there with me. And because every farmer had a story or every, like every, and she constantly got free stuff all the time. That's why all three of them will eat raw banana peppers to mm. this day is that um, one of the farmers there would give her banana peppers all the time. And uh, so then she knew Penny Shelton and Chris Hutto and all those. So she, we would always go out there, and because the food had a story, she'd be more inclined to eat her vegetables. And so that was a win as, yeah. as a parent. It's like, oh, well, you remember the farmer we went to? Like, we went to Joe's farm um, I saw yesterday. the T-shirt, the tie-dyed T-shirt she on your Instagram. On, yeah. Or brought, maybe Christina's. I don't yeah. Remember, yeah. She, uh, she brought her, uh, her own money. She insisted on buying a T-shirt. She bought it a size bigger because she wants to be able to grow into That's it. That's adorable. It for a long time. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So... But no, they're great. They just, you know, they need to listen. And the other daughter's too young to tell if there's a certain fire for what you guys love. Yes. You being Christina and, yes. and yourself. Yeah. Um, Colette is going to, I feel like she's very artsy. She doesn't, she's not a big. Which Christina is. Yes. So there's yes. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's very artsy and uh, very much like her mom, but she is more passive and she's very, very. Um, very lazy, <laughs> uh, which is funny because her older sister and her younger sister are just always on. Always. Mm. And so the youngest, the baby, she's three. She's uh, a lot like Vivian. So I don't know where it's going to go with that, but she is, um, uh, she's kind of hard to figure out where her head's at a lot of times, but you know, she's a very quippy child. Yeah. She's like, if you say so, and just random, I little, love her attitude, you know though. what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. she's just bobbing around like a little Muppet, you know, you, I never know where she's going to go next, but Vivian is, is, yeah, she has focus and mm. determination and it sometimes can get her into trouble because she doesn't really, you know, pay all that much attention. Would you try to talk them out of? the culinary world if you could or do you subscribe to if you want to do it if it's your passion 
you know, I support you, go do it. Yeah. I don't know. Or a little I mean, bit of both. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but maybe not do that. Right. You know? I mean, yeah. it's kind of, um, it's really hard to uh, know how to kind of toe that line because I don't really know if um, I would say don't do that. I, I definitely um, in the past have thought I would love to be able to teach her how to cook so she can cook for herself. Mm. Because when I hear of people who don't know how to boil water and things like that, I'm just like, how? Like, why? And then I think back to myself, you know, 15 years ago, like I could boil water, but I didn't really know how to do much of anything else. Sure. But I mean, you know, you, there's so much uh, media surrounding food these days and, and stuff like that to where it's really simple and uh, it's easy to get inspired, I, I feel like in a lot of cases. And some people um, feel like they don't have a knack for it, but I also think that a lot of those folks will uh, try it a couple times. If they fail, they won't do it anymore because you have to do the dishes mm. and you ruin dinner and all. You know, there's a lot yeah. that goes into cooking as far as cleaning and all that stuff is concerned. So I don't know if I would ever tell her don't do it, but uh, I definitely want her to learn the the technical sure. basics so that way she can you know, go through life and cook herself a meal, cook a meal for, you know, whomever else comes into her life and all that. So You're, you'll cross that bridge right before you know it. Exactly. Um, do you think the confidence that you gain in the kitchen and being able to cook for yourself and being able to see raw ingredients and visualize what you're going to turn them into, does that bleed over and equate into other parts of your life? Like, yes. did you see that in yourself? Yes. The confidence? Um, I don't know about the confidence. I think it is, it's almost like, uh, it's almost worse than that. It's almost like the judgment of other people that can't do it. No, it's, it's, uh, in life in everyday situations and I'll give a Let's very, dig into that. Yeah. I'll give a very easy example. If you have never worked in the service industry before you can tell, and it's very simple when you can tell it's at the self checkout line in the grocery store. God, a 100,000%. That's it. It's like that is some litmus test for people who have been in the service industry versus people who haven't because there is a what's called a sense of urgency yeah. and, it, you know, move fast and get shit done. Like there is a very simple approach to how you have to be in a restaurant setting. And I am lucky enough to be able to think as I cook in the situation. It's the multitasking thing, bar. right? Yeah. But being able to, you know, figure out the checkout at uh, wherever, whatever grocery store you're in. I mean, it's, it's very apparent the people who have and the people who haven't by just watching for a little while. You were 100% accurate. <laughs> 100. Uh, you mentioned tack earlier. Yeah. So let's, let's jump back to that. Mm -hmm. Your foray into the kitchen as a professional was because of him. How? So I was working at a, an airplane part machine shop in uh, North Tulsa. A friend okay. of mine was a lead there. And we were working in a uh, room that was called the D-Burr room. And D-Burr basically means to take the burr off of metal parts with a, um, a handgun. Okay. So you take this gun um, that is, uh, it has a uh, sanding pad on the end of it, and then you basically make those parts smooth, then they go and they can actually be on airplanes, which is crazy to think that that could happen based on the people that I worked with. Yeah, that scares the hell out of me. Right? It should. So um, I was out there. As and, I cancel my flight. Right. <laughs> I was out there uh, for, I think, about a year. And um, I had just met Trevor. I was uh, living with a guy I grew up with. 
and his uh, older brother, and they were my roommates, but they were in the service industry. Mm. And so I met the whole, I'll call them the chalkboard garlic rose crew. Uh, you know, the Josh and Shannon Ozaris, the Jared Jordan, the Trevor Tack, and um, of course my wife as well. And uh, lots of other folks uh, through them who I'm now still very good friends with uh, to this day. And I don't know what he saw in me as far as uh, wanting to bring me on. But he said uh, it started out as a dish, uh, a night of doing dishes. And then uh, that was just a fill in gig. And then uh, for one night and then uh, maybe it was a few weeks later. I can't remember the timeline, but he said, I think you'd really like it. You should come out and give it a try. It's like, okay. Um, and this was at where? At Soche Jazz Soche. Cafe. Yep. So this restaurant that opened across the street from the BOK, we opened the same year the BOK opened. So that's how I know how long I've been cooking. Um, we opened and uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. The amount of experience that was in that kitchen uh, was a lot less than it should have been. Mm. Um, but, you know, we were able to put out a lot of really good food uh, it just never really took off the way that they had hoped, the ownership had hoped. And so um, they chalked that up to mismanagement. And then, you know, actually, Tack and I both got let go on the same day, Fun. which was interesting. Yeah. I had I remember this day. I was At least waiting. you had someone to commiserate with and go drink with. Oh, yeah. So. We went straight to Arnie's. But no, I, I, had, yeah. uh, I was working on a fruit tart for dessert, and I was reading a cookbook on our little lunch break thing between lunch service and dinner service. And uh, I think Jared was the one who told us, actually. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That didn't strain the friendship at all, did no, it? No, no. Actually, no, it didn't. And he, because he kept apologizing. I'm sorry. I can't believe I have to do this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, no, but it led to um, me working at Stonehorse, which Jared kind of. Jordan, you asshole. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, which kind of changed. Uh, it changed a lot for me. Um, that place was a well-oiled machine and had been for a long time. And a lot of people there had a lot of experience and Trevor and I both started there and, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, tack talking me into basically coming in and, and working the pantry line, which is essentially, you know, cold, um, salads and cold appetizers and things like that. And the cast of characters that we got to work with, you know, we got to work with some people that used to hop trains uh, throughout the country. No shit. Yeah, it was interesting. What a weird background that is. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we had, def I mean, it's it, it's like, you know, the, they... What does that even true. mean? Like, you spent your days just jumping from train to train, box yards, or trying to get where? Yeah. Wherever it was going? Wherever it was going, man. Yeah. And then you just figured it out when you yeah. got there? And then And they learned how to cook because you can get a cook job in any city. That's how you can travel. I mean, if you want to do it, if grass fire goes south, right? John's going to become a train there hopper. There you go. Is that still a thing? Are there still enough trains oh, to be I'm a train sure. hopper? I'm sure. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was. You always meet all these uh, these wonderful folks uh, who kind of they. I I believe they kind of help you um, perceive humanity a little bit better because I mean, if you were on the outside, just you know, judging the book by its cover. You would never think, oh, I'm going to go hang out with that person. Mm. I'm going to feel as though they're my brother or sister in arms. But once you go through service together, it's you have a... Become a, a family. Yeah, a very yeah. distinct bond. That whole pirate ship mentality. Man, that's interesting. So then how long did you and Tack stay in the same kitchen before you went your own ways? Was Chalkboard the last of that? Well, we actually never worked at Chalkboard together. So oh, okay. we worked okay. at Soche together. And that was, um, I'm pretty sure that was right at a year. Um, and then 
I left there and started working at uh, what was called Lola's at the Bowery, which is now where the tavern is. Gotcha. So that same space. We didn't have the extended kitchen that they have now. That was actually extra seating. When you see them from the street, Mm -hmm. the window, the chef's table. Yes. yes. Yeah. We had this little galley kitchen, and uh, that's where I met uh, Nico Albert and uh, Jacob Eide. And we all, for the most part, liked the same music and got along well. Um, and so it was, a, it was a good time. But I wanted something I felt like um, I needed somebody with more experience to kind of um, learn from, I felt mm. like. I needed a, um, a different kind of mentorship, I felt like. And so um, that's when I started at Stonehorse. Gotcha. And... Uh, with Trevor, uh, Trevor ended up leaving there, um, not too long after we both started, but, um, I mean, he had so much going on. He was a new father and all sorts of stuff. So I was able to kind of, uh, dig in there and, um, lasted for a couple of years there. So, I mean, in all honesty, as for as long as I've known Trevor, we've only worked together for about a year. And in, in that time, he taught me how to, you know, uh, hold a knife. He taught me how to make a uh, all uh, you know any sauce a hollandaise classic hollandaise mm. lobster fume i got to kill lobsters for the first time which was so bizarre to me because of the way that you do it um it's so aggressive it is i mean you are stabbing them in the back of the, for those that don't know that yeah. are watching and listening describe how you kill the lobster yeah so they're stomach down on your board and you take the tip of your knife and you place it like above their shoulder, like right in between the uh, head um, shell and the body shell, and you cut straight down, and then you cut straight down that. So then you split their head in two, and that immediately dispatches them. It's aggressive. It is. It is. And so, it's very dexterish. It is. It really is. When that happened, like, you know, when you... <laughs> Did you have a freak out moment the first time you saw him do it? No, no. It was, it was, it, I was taken aback for sure because I had never really... Well, there's Winkle throwing up in the corner. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, that was a different day. Ah. No, but this one, uh, it made me take a lot more care of what we did with them. And so, um, like, there's this really famous uh, Thomas Keller story, how he talks about... This farmer one day he ordered rabbits from and they showed up and they were live rabbits. And so he had to not only dispatch them, but he also had to, um, you know, take the fur off everything. And so he said that since then, um, he has had so much more of an appreciation for the animals, the life they lead or they lived and um, how they are handled afterwards. He said that if you've ever had to do that to a rabbit, you're much more likely to keep your focus on that rabbit while it's in the oven versus just being able to, oh, it's overcooked, tossing it, starting it. Mm. So that fume that we made with the shells, like um, impurities manifest in stocks by uh, bubbles and scum, right? So you're constantly, in every French kitchen, you're, you're taking a ladle or a shallow spoon and you're constantly skimming, skimming, skimming. I probably sat in front of that thing for three and a half hours, just skimming, mm. skimming. And it made it, it made a very lasting impression because of the work that went into it. Obviously, the super heavy metal way that we had to kill them. And, heavy metal Right. Way. And, and all those other things. So 
it, uh, it, yeah, it kind of, I feel like that subconsciously sort of changed, uh, something in me in regards to sure. how I've sourced since then when I've been in a position to make the orders myself. Am I weird? Because I, it, it bothers me to my core to think of what I would do if I got a bunch of live rabbits and mm -hmm. I had to kill them. Right. But I also love eating rabbit mm -hmm. and meat. So right. like I'm I'm not a bleeding heart PETA member. Right. I'm a carnivore. I love eating meat. Mm -hmm. But if I stop and think about if I had to do the murdering of the animals right. in order to eat them, it weirds me the fuck out. Yeah. Does that make me weird? Or no. is it like a okay. No, that's a very Because I can turn it off when I'm eating it. Right. And just enjoy it and not think about because it, in you're my so mind, far removed, right? Right. In my mind, I'm so far removed and it's a whole process that I'm not involved in yeah. and maybe machines are doing it, not humans. Exactly. But then like if it was me and I have all the respect in the world for the Joe Rogans of the world and whoever that basically hunt for their food, they go mm -hmm. kill elk or they go kill bison or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they have food for years, if not multiple yep. years, you know, your freezer full. Yeah. But yeah, just thinking about that, like, man, Thomas Keller's a gangster. Cause that would. I mean, I know. got a box full of rabbits. If you got a box full of rabbits and Biv or Colette found them, you'd be up shit's Creek right. if you had to try oh, to turn yeah, around and I kill them. Run me out on a rail for sure. Yeah. I don't know what they would do to me if they found out that I had killed 20 rabbits and then, you know, cooked them for yeah. dinner. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know what they would do. Um, but yeah, I've, I've only been a part of, uh, something like that once. And I will say that we, it was uh, a friend of mine was uh, raising pigs. We dispatched, oh, you've told me story. Yeah. scalded, and harvested everything uh, in the same day. It was it was a long day. That's a long because we did not have the right equipment for it. At all. Oh no, that uh, makes it worse. Not even close. Um, but you know, we got it done. And I will say that the next day, I made uh, I think it was pork chops was the first thing I cooked from that, and those were to this day the best pork chop I've ever had. Mm. So. I, I don't I don't know, uh, but my wife will actually back me up and say the same thing. So I don't know that it was necessarily the fact that I was a part of the whole situation, mm -hmm. more so than it was how fresh it was, how um, how the animals treated in its life, all those different things. Sure. Like we tried to we tried to go to uh, go about it as best we could. Research. Do you want to do a little more of the 1792, or do we want to have a little bread first? Um, I think why don't you pour and I'll cut. Oh, that's, that's perfect. Cool. Well, one of us needs to be talking while the other's doing things. So we, we can do this. So ex let's, let's go into the bread uh -huh. deep dive right now. Okay. So your affinity for it, your passion for it, all of that here, as I'm asking the question, you can start to cut. Okay. How's that? Sure. Um, but the, it, it's been interesting to watch from a friend's perspective, your growing passion for bread and, and everything that, that comes with it. Um, I'm curious when you kind of grew that affinity, like, was there a moment that you remember you were like eating a piece of bread and you're like, oh, this is kind of shit. I bet I could make it better than this. And then turned around and tried to bake your first loaf or how does one become obsessed with the process of making bread and what about it drew you to it? Um, I want to say as far as the, the baking process, it is very much the whole uh, going back to that alchemy scenario of being able to take what looks like sludge or porridge or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, your bread dough starts looking out like and, and being able to make something that is 
um, texturally unique and, uh, in my opinion, culturally significant. I mm. think that bread and grains are the cornerstone of civilization. Um, I mean, when you talk about beer or ale and bread, those things kept people alive for many, many years when water was not potable, um, all sorts of different things. So I think along with flavor and texture and appeal, just the actual appearance of it, honestly, I think, you know, um, a very deeply roasted loaf of bread is uh, very attractive. Uh, mahogany and color, none of that bullshit blonde crap. That just doesn't make any sense because you don't get anywhere near the flavor. Right. Um, but I love that it can accompany uh, just about anything. I mean, we were talking earlier um, with our staff uh, about salad sandwiches, something as simple as mm. taking Summer's Bounty, slicing it thin, dressing it, putting it in between two pieces of sourdough, and that's it. That's so interesting. People, Sounds delicious. Oh, no, it, it's great. I mean, you know, uh, tomato, cucumber, zucchini, uh, all those things stacked in layers, uh, dressed with oil, a little bit of vinegar, salt and pepper, and then maybe a mayo for fat or butter even. It's it's killer. Mm. So good. I will give you credit. Like what, what you just described just brought me back to before I sold my house, there was an, oh, well, multiple nights, but. One night in particular sticks out. I think you came over and we were drinking beer, probably. Imagine that. And uh, I think you were hungry or I was hungry or something like that. And you said, what do you what do you have in your fridge and pantry? And I was like, oh, nothing really. And you were like, ah, I think that's kind of bullshit. And so you went through my refrigerator and my pantry. And you're like, dude, you could make this and this and this, this and this and this, if you just combine this and this with this and this. And then I go like to the restroom or to let the dogs out or whatever. And I come back and you're on the stove, on the burner, cooking something. Was it meatballs? Might've been. Was that the meatball It night? was the meatball night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, um, was, that was actually really late. I remember that. It was, yeah. yeah. No, we're just pan basting some, uh, some random meatballs. Yeah, I mean. But uh, what I was going to say is I appreciate, like I feel like I've learned more in the kitchen from you and not like here's the recipe, but mm -hmm. but like the alchemy of it maybe, right. or the more of like no, but if you have this and this, then you can combine it, and then if you add this, like what you're saying with adding the fat to the acid and to the salt, mm -hmm. like you know, it, it's a whole thing. Right. But I learned more about that from you than I have anyone else. So thank you for oh, that. Man, well, I'm I'm glad I could be of some service. I mean, honestly, I, the thing that I love about um, cooking, and at the end of the day, it's like, it's either going to turn out great or it's not. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be the, you know, the pillar of the culinary universe for it to be a delicious meal or, you know, you just give it a shot. And I think a lot of people um, will do a lot better than they think they will yeah. if they just throw down all their inhibition of, oh, well, I've never cooked before, or I, I don't know what I'm doing, or, you know, any number of excuses. I mean, the same thing happened to me with sourdough for the Dude, longest time. This is time. delicious. Thanks. So that's um, some butter that we cultured at Farm Bar. Um, the, uh, the cream that we get, oh, man, the butterfat content is nuts. So I really mm. love that butter. But, um, yeah, it's just uh, I feel like a lot of people um, just kind of lack the confidence in the kitchen in a lot of ways. Like I'm still kind of finding mine because for the longest time I haven't been in the kitchen. I, I was two years removed yeah. from, um, interestingly enough, the last time I was set to be the chef at Farm Bar, the pandemic happened. And so I left because we went into furlough 
and I had to find something because like we've talked about, I have three young girls and a wife at home and I needed something that was um, one that I wouldn't get sick while I was there. And because uh, that at, at the time was just um, uh, everybody was dying. So it was like you know, right. the end of the world. Right. right? Um, but uh, and now it basically doesn't exist. <laughs> right, except for I had it like a month ago. Yeah, but no one talks about it. Right, but no one talks about it. Right. Yeah, no. Christine and I got it for the very first time uh, a month, a month and a half ago, maybe, and uh, that went through our house. But you know, um, so having to find a job that wasn't in the kitchen, that wasn't around people all the time, uh, was uh, definitely left my skills unpolished. And so getting back to it, I'm now, just now, since February is when I started back at Farm Bar with uh, Lisa, um, really getting my feet under me. I feel like I'm able mm -hmm. to be a little bit more creative and not just worry about getting the job done, but actually like how best to do it. Because before, I mean, you do lose confidence um, that you can slowly gain, but you know, so much of cooking professionally is in the eye of the beholder and it's in the, it's in the end result. You can taste as much as you want to, but right. you know, taste is so subjective as well. Going back to the natural wine thing, yep. you know, I mean, uh, people's taste are their taste and you know, some people just don't like it. Um, they don't, uh, think that it, uh, you know, it deserves a, a place at the table. Um, I, I think otherwise, but it's, I also don't have all of that uh, background knowledge uh, when it right. comes to you know that whole natural wine thing. But yeah, I think a lot of it is just confidence in the kitchen and, and um, thinking about things as a balance. I mean, bread is a balance. You're balancing you know so many different things and it's three ingredients. Yeah. That's it. So what went into this loaf? Uh, so this loaf is... And I didn't mean ingredients, I just meant process. And like, right, right, right. Know, yeah. So I'll throw out some percentages. Yeah, please. Because I have a question about that. Sure. And then I'll explain it pretty quickly. So basically, when you make sourdough bread, I, I use a scale, a gram scale. It's actually a postal scale. It's my favorite scale because the face, you can move it and do big bowls mm. of batches or whatever. But um, so this is about 45% um, stone ground whole wheat and 84% hydration. And those percentages are based on the total weight of the flour that goes into it. This is why it surprises me you weren't a science kid. I'm not, but when it comes to technique and when it comes yeah. to being able to apply this, so so this bread is what I make at home. This is actually the the home recipe that I use quite often, and it's you know um, twenty percent of it is uh, levain or um, sourdough, the pre ferment, you know, your starter. And then, you know, a little bit of salt here and there, and you're pretty good. I mean, obviously you need your salt, but you need to add it at certain stages in the bread, um, in the life of the loaf or the life of the dough, essentially. How long did it take you to figure out those percentages? And if you weren't to make it at home in the environment in which those percentages give you this end product, mm -hmm. would those percentages, percentages have to be adjusted? Uh, no, no, okay. uh, not those in particular. Um, it, the percentages would be changed it, depending on the grains that we use. So because I'm using stone ground whole wheat and uh, they're both actually from uh, Bob's Red Mill, which is a, a very trustable source of uh, flour. So like for instance at the restaurant, we use um, a King Arthur special patent, which is just a slightly higher protein content than an all-purpose flour, mm. which basically um, means that it has a little bit more strength, more or less. It's less than a bread flour, 
but more than an all-purpose flour. So you can still bake like nice, delicious cakes with it, pastries, all that stuff. And uh, then we use um, cat's whole wheat. So this whole wheat is uh, grown organically in uh, Fairview, Oklahoma. Uh, by John's Farm. They've been growing organic uh, whole wheat for a really long time. It's hard red winter wheat, usually speaking. Oh, somebody didn't turn their phone on silent. Man. That's okay. Justin Thompson's the other day went off because someone in his favorites was texting him when he was on the show. So it, it's a running theme. You're nice. Good. You're good. Um, so yeah, so uh, she gets it uh, from them and then she has a, 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 a mill. I mean, she's gone to, Cat Cox is who I'm talking about. Does a great job yeah. baking bread. She is, a, she is an amazing baker. She really was able to make her name at Living Kitchen and Farm Bar before me. Um, one of my, I uh, consider a very good friend of mine, uh, still love buying that whole wheat from her. I started using it back whenever I had my own place. Um, Which we'll get into in a second. Sure. I'm going to ask you about that. Um, but so I, I know how it interacts with that flour specifically. So, um, that's what we generally use as a base, but for instance today, um, which is wildly different than the bread that we're having right now is a, a porridge style bread. And so basically that is just a, a way of adding even more hydration and more flavor, uh, and more, um, a little bit more fermentability, but, um, also just, uh, being able to highlight another grain profile. Mm. So today's bread that I made for the first time was a purple rice porridge. The purple rice is from Ralston rice in Arkansas. They are a sustainable farm out there, uh, with uh, charred shishito peppers. Oh, so that's bro. the porridge. Come on. And then we're going to serve it with that butter. But over the top of the butter, we put a, um, we take uh, tomato skins after we process them, dehydrate them and turn them into a powder. So it adds acidity there, but also a little bit of savoriness. So you're gonna have purple rice, charred shishito in a form of a porridge. That's like your thirty twenty shit. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is like the porridge breads are uh, by design, you know, or by um, you know becoming more and more popular. That's that's a Cat Cox thing. I mean, she it started is. that at Living Kitchen, and I know that you know. Granted, porridge breads um, are not her um, uh, invention, right? But she made them famous in Tulsa for sure. So the and shishitos are deep in deep. the bread? Oh, yeah. They're charred in a pan first, and they're drained of the oil, and then they're chopped up, and they're added to the rice porridge, which, uh, like I was saying before, is yeah. purple. So it's it kind of lends a color to the dough, which deepens it. It lends a new flavor to the dough. But the shishitos, the, the point behind them, it, for me, is going to be aromatic. Mm. So when you bake the bread and you heat it back up in the oven and you pull it out, you're going to be able to smell it from your plate. So like last week's bread was a buckwheat porridge with a scallion from the farm. So luckily at Farm Bar, we also have our own farm that does a lot of produce that we get to use. And it's awesome. It's very um, inspiring. And we mm. try to figure out ways of utilizing them. And uh, so we were doing um, all sorts of different things with the scallion top as far as uh, garnishing or flavoring or whatever, but we needed to use the whites. And so you don't even see them in the bread, but you smell them mm. the second it, the plate goes in front of you because we serve the bread so hot. But yeah, so porridge style breads are um, new to me. Uh, sourdough, like we said, I've been doing since the R-Bar days. I used to bake them in uh, what we refer to as third pans. Mm -hmm. 
So the loaves were huge by Cooks, Renee specifically. You know Renee? Oh, Renee. How was uh, Renee? Uh, I haven't talked to him in a while. You haven't talked to him in a while. I need to uh, send him a text. But um, no, he, he had to hate me because we baked the loaves that morning and he had to cut them on the line. And when they're that big and you're cutting them to order and all this stuff, it's like <laughs> the bread being fresh. If you don't have a knife like I have, it's just it's really tough to cut fresh bread. Like this bread was baked just a couple hours ago. It's delicious, man. Well, thanks. Um, so let's talk about your your venture where you owned and operated for the first time. Yeah. Down south, Levan. Mm-hmm. Um, you ready for the most open ended, broad question I've ever asked on a podcast? What did you take away from that? Oh man, what was what was your biggest <laughs> lesson from that one, buddy? Did you get that out of the rule book for questions <laughs> right. for interviewers? Right, yeah. Um, it's interviewers for dummies. Right, exactly. Find it at Barnes and Noble. I everywhere. saw your four dummies section. That's what, walking yeah, in. That's, I mean, I was surprised that you had. There's video. a lot of shit in there I was too. Surprised you had videography for dummies. Yeah, there's I was like, that Whoa. driving for dummies. I mean, there's fucking <laughs> so many books out there. Right. Yeah. Um, man, it, it was, that's exactly what it was. Uh, and it's something that I, uh, I don't take for granted being able to open it with my wife and with our, uh, then friends, it didn't work out, but what do you, what do you equate? Like if you were to pinpoint why Mm -hmm. was it location? Was it newness of doing it for the first time and not having known a couple of things? Was it a combination of all of it? Like, what, what do you think? The, the reason was, if you could say that. I mean, uh, a successful restaurant is is such a, a random combination of things that have to happen and that have to work. Um, I, I don't really, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that likes to um, have a place to place blame, usually mm. on myself, so that way I can just internalize it and get over with, get it over with. Um, and, and just move on. But, uh, with that, I don't really know exactly, um, what the, uh, the downfall, I mean, eventually, and we were already on our way there, but eventually it was COVID. Um, so when people ask at face value, I can say, oh, you know, we were a, a COVID casualty, unfortunately closed down at that point, but I was not a part of it at that point. So, um, I was already at uh, living kitchen while the people, um, that were, uh, working it with me, we're trying to keep it afloat. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, restaurants, successful restaurants, it's just, it's, it's really hard to, to pinpoint, um, what the, uh, equi- or what the successful formula is or the formula for success. Um, I really enjoyed our food. I really enjoyed our sourcing. Food I thought, was spectacular. Well, thank you. I thought yeah. that the, uh, the ambiance was really neat because, um, we could go from casual cafe during the daytime and then you turn the lights down and we could go to a really sexy dining room at night because of the, uh, the lights in there, the fireplace, the fireplace, the, yeah. you know, the, the banquet was really neat. And, uh, the fact that you get to watch us cook was that really was my neat. spot. The banquet. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so it was always, uh, something that I fought tooth and nail for, uh, for a really long time until it was time to, uh, to basically back out. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, this is something that I really enjoy talking to, uh, Lisa with, uh, or about, um, Lisa Becklin, because she, as you know, mm-hmm. um, talked about it in, uh, when she came on about, uh, her failure in Seattle. Up in Seattle. Yeah. And it's, you know, I was talking to her as she was talking about opening farm bar and it took her that long. I had no idea she was that young. 
when she was that successful right. either. Right. I was, I mean, you know, well that was one of the 30s. more vulnerable episodes mm -hmm. and like her opening up. I'm so appreciative of because yeah. I learned things that obviously I had no clue of right. either. I was like, wow, you were a baby. Right. Can you Maybe. imagine being 24 and having a successful thing that that's the only thing you ever wanted to do? I couldn't have a successful marriage at 24, let alone like most people can't open up a I know award-winning restaurant right. like that. I mean, come on. Right. So, I I love being able to to talk to her about it because she has such a. Uh, I, I feel like that's where we really kind of uh, see each other's sides of um, of the being in the business is. We can talk about our failures and mm. then we can talk about our successes together and we can talk about how that was the past and this is the future. This is the now. I mean, you know, failure makes you question everything about yourself. Like, what did I do wrong? Like what you were saying, you know, it, it's really hard to say. Mm. I would love to just be able to blame the location or maybe it was we didn't offer enough uh, different, you know, kinds of food or our menu wasn't big enough or our staff wasn't big enough. It just, you know, it's, it's this weird, you know, as success is a weird combination of things. So is the failure of it. Yeah. And, um, but I will say that, yeah, we learned so much from it. And, um, that I think the most, uh, important thing that we learned from it is that your, your partnership really, really is the most important aspect of it. Um, knowing where everybody's coming from, having open communication, mm. um, is also a really important part. Isn't that funny? That's a through line to so many things. Yeah. Just communicate. Yep. Just say it. Yeah. Because I mean, if you don't say it, it's just going to fester and become a, a you know, a failed business. I have a friend of mine that says, and he is a very, I don't know who to equate him to in our friend group, but he says it all the time. He's like, I'm a face stabber. Mm -hmm. I'm not a backstabber. Yeah. He's like, I'll tell you right. to your face. You might not like it. Right. And I might not like saying it, right. but I'm going to stab you in the face. I'm not going to wait until you turn around yeah. and tell somebody else oh, of course. what I was just about to tell you. And I've, I've lived by the, you know, I, I don't know, uh, motto or whatever. I'll never say anything behind your back I wouldn't say to your face. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, when you're in that a situation like that, a restaurant that is slowly failing, but you have good days or you have even a good week, it's just this thing that keeps pulling the rug out from you underneath you and you keep running to the rug just keeps happening, keeps mm. happening because you, you see these successes, but when these successes last days or a day a week and you don't know any better than to, well, reassess and ask yourself, are we putting all of our resources in the right places? Are we spread too thin? Is it capital? Is it, um, time? Is it our, you know, our hours? I mean, mm. you ask, you question everything when you're not, just successful day after day after mm -hmm. day. But then you get those glimpses of a Tulsa World Review, for instance. I was talking to Lisa about this the other day. We had two separate Tulsa World Reviews because we first opened up for brunch and then we opened up with full dinner service. And um, thankfully, uh, Scott Cherry and his wife, who's very kind to us, uh, liked us and we had two four and a half star reviews. That's awesome. Uh, which I was like over the moon about. So, so happy. Well, when those reviews came out, we were busy for those two days. Mm. And I don't know why it's like that in Tulsa specifically, because, you know, in bigger cities, they, they just have a population that can like, you know, it will funnel down or, mm -hmm. you know, flow down to where, oh, well, we're not going to go today. We're going to go next week. And 
I, I don't know what what it is about like about that. Like Lisa was talking about Seattle and how if a review came out, they would be busy for weeks or months or whatever. And I told her, I was like, straight up, we were busy for Shit, those, dude, sometimes decades. Yeah. For right? those two days. And those weren't the only two busy days. I, I don't want to say that it was all just, you know, us standing around, but um, those were our two busiest days that I remember mm. having. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it, it was a very big learning experience. Like anyone who's ever failed will say, um, but I hope to someday, you know, do it again. And I hope to someday do it again with my wife, if she will do it again with me. Um, <laughs> Did that strain the relationship at all? Um, it, I mean, we've always had a really, really strong relationship. Because um, I'd imagine, like, if you're both stressed out about the same thing, you're working together, you got to come home. Like, I could see that, even in the strongest relationship, at times being like, you know, it's, it's just you're going to butt heads about right. it, right? I mean, for sure, but it was more, um, I think it was more communicative between the two of us than it was between us and our partners at certain points because of how much we were putting into the work mm -hmm. versus how much we felt we had, we were able to just sit on the sidelines and watch things happen and then talk about them. We, we put way more emphasis on um, the day-to-day, -day, being there, doing the work, getting the things done, how can we save money. Um, you know, while still staying true to what it was that we wanted to do, you know, I, I didn't do my food cost for the first year that we were open mm -hmm. and I just, uh, was, I, I just didn't want to focus on that. I wanted to focus on the people that were there making it a good place to work and, um, you know, our, our guests experience. And after I'd finally done it, I did it for like the last three months that we had worked and, um, it was uh, shockingly low. And why well, say shockingly low because of the way that we sourced was so much local food. Everybody thinks that if you source locally, it's much more expensive, when in certain cases it can be, but the local market fluctuates much less than the uh, grocery store does. Mm. But a lot of people don't notice it. Like, I mean, I know, I know that you as a, a barbecue enthusiast um, have seen the beef prices. I've stopped doing brisket. Exactly. Like, uh, well, why would you? Right. Why would you keep doing that? When you like, who's who is going to be able to afford a whole brisket? Yeah, I'm app? not selling it. So it's... right, I can actually. You could probably go to uh, a local um, purveyor or a local rancher and buy a brisket that is the same price right now. And yeah. whereas before it seemed so uh, astronomical, uh, uh, an ask for, you know, six dollars a pound to eight fifty a pound. Now it's like just that's what research is getting. Yeah. So I, I feel like being able to talk to the person who I'm putting money in their pocket is a lot better for me than a big box anything. I say that all the time. Like I would rather pay my friends money than pay a stranger money mm -hmm. across the board. Yeah. I don't care what it's for. I would rather pay more. Honestly, yeah, because you know who you're supporting. Right. You know what it's going towards. Right. Um, it, I'm happy to hear that the experience didn't sour you on opening up your own spot no no in the future yeah that's that that uh, you know obviously down the road but still you know we we've got a, a pretty good idea for something that's fun that will be uh you know we Ooh. refer to it as our retirement or whatever but it's our retirement while still working <laughs> no no details you can no okay, no okay. no all right i'll leave it <laughs> when we stop yeah, recording for, i'll ask you again right it's um, that's for i think for um for down the road but sure. you know with that being said we're still 
we're still daydreaming. We're still um, overthinking things. We're still talking about, you know, decor well before, you know, we need to. Sure. But I mean, that's just anybody who any who has an entrepreneurial spirit, I feel like. Um, so I'm glad that uh, she's willing to do it with me again. Yeah. And um, hopefully it will be a smashing success and exactly what Tulsa wants. I've versus... told you about the restaurant I want to open, haven't I? No. No, I swear over whiskey or beer at some point I've told you about no, this. I don't think so. When I start to tell you, I think you're going to remember it. Okay. I think, I don't know the spot yet. I was going to say Kendall Whittier. Yeah. But I'm not sure where. I'm not even sure if Tulsa's the right place. But I want to open up a pastor taco bar. Yeah. Basically. Mm -hmm. That serves two beers in cans. Mm hmm and has the rotating thing of Pastor. What's that called? Trompo. Yep. And it's open from midnight to 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. And it's near a bunch of bars. Yeah. And that's it. No seating inside. All patio seating so that when I close down, you guys can stay there and eat and drink whatever. Beers and cans. No dishes. I've only seen paper plates. one other place like that maybe. Yeah. In Tulsa for sure. But so I'm, I'm thinking, man, like that's what's better than drunk tacos? Nothing. Right? And then Pastor have a couple of different salsas mm -hmm. that we make fresh each day. Mm -hmm. I say we because you're involved in this, by oh. the way, just so you know. <laughs> I'll um, consult, but I'm, but I'm <laughs> yeah, expensive, yeah. just so you know. Right, right. And so that, that's my idea for a restaurant. Um, all right, two bigger questions, and I'll let you go because we sure. could just talk for hours. Um, you mentioned populations and how that kind of can affect, I guess, the number of people. Obviously, it has a tangible effect right. on how many people come out to eat, all that different stuff. To me, it also has a tangible effect just because of the sheer numbers of if you open up a certain style of restaurant, there are more people that are going to be drawn to that style if the pool you're drawing from is bigger, right? right? The only thing that worries, and it's not worries me from a sense of anything about the quality of food, anything like that, but a restaurant that does strictly tasting menu mm -hmm. in a city like Tulsa that doesn't have a huge population size. Is there a concern in your mind at all that at some point that runs its course and people are like, I don't want to go have another, however many course dinner. I just want to go have a burger. And I know you have burger night, so mm -hmm. that might be a bad example, mm -hmm. but the, the question still stands, right? Sure. Like, does that sit back there in your mind at all? Does it sit in Lisa's mind at all? Do you know? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. you know, with anybody who owns a business, you always wonder, is it always going to be a sustainable thing for us to mm -hmm. do? Um, because of the way that we cook, and again, because I think it's the right way, um, we are given so many um, outlets to emphasize how it works well for us. Mm-hmm. But equally and in ideally more so works well for the guest. So mm. as far as um, we are not a, a, a butts and seats operation, you know, there is a certain number of people that we would like to see every night. And at that certain number, we are profitable, um, which is uh, great to know. Uh, and it's so important. Regardless to know. of the menu. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, it's very important to know. Um, and, you know, with the menu, we we have only recently started to expand um, into the seafood world. And mm. the reason for that is, um, I don't know if it was necessarily, uh, me talking about it openly, but I think it was, I actually think it was Kat and myself before Kat, um, left for New York was, uh, talking to Lisa about her story. I mean, she's from Seattle. Uh, she grew up around seafood her entire life. Um, she cooks seafood very, very well. Um, 
what do we do at, what is at our core? And that is sustainable sourcing and trying to source from the, uh, the best people that we can and trying to support those people who are doing the right thing. And so through that, we have began to uh, work with uh, Bodine locally and then probably a couple of places um, as well for some more specialty items. But we want to find those same types of farmers. Um, you know, I'll take uh, just off the top of my head, um, resilient growers in uh, right outside of Tulsa right now. They are, do an incredible job with produce. Joe Tierney, obviously, and Bixby does an incredible job with produce. And so we want to um, buy from them as much as possible and support them as best we can because that the more money that we are able to pay them, the better they're able to do their job and the more time they have to do it, the more time they have to think about how to get better at doing it. It just, it's it's all that, you know, we call it capital, but I mean, it's, it's resources, mm-hmm. 100%. So we're looking for those people now after all this time because we, and when I say we, I mean, well, I guess kind of it's, it's my mission now is to kind of tell Lisa's story through seafood at the restaurant. So the first thing we brought on, um, we've had, you know, shrimp and mussels here for whatever, but you know, shellfish is a a very great thing to have period just for the environment, um, Mm -hmm. for its impact on, uh, the aquaculture you know, in its whole. So, um, bringing on mussels and doing a dish that uh, features them. And then also, you know, seasonally, you know, uh, well-sourced, um, halibut and sustainable things like that is um is important so when it comes to the the diner's experience that's what we're about we're about the experience that's we're, why i think what i asked the answer is yes it will survive yeah yeah i mean because yeah, of that long story short for sure right because not only are we and, and we're also uh keen on the fact that being able to sit down for 11 courses for two hours plus um is uh, a commitment it's a commitment monetarily and it's a commitment with your time. But I think that's your niche, right? It, it, I, I think it's like if, if I'm, and not to interrupt you, no, but if, if I'm going to spend money mm-hmm. on a special occasion dinner, I would much rather spend it in a place that gives me the quality of the food that you're talking about, that gives me a menu that if I come back in two months is not going to be the same, right? right? It's going to be seasonal. Mm-hmm. It's going to be picked from farms and outlets or whatever that are, I know are top quality. Mm-hmm. And if the price is roughly what I would spend to go to a chain and eat a nice dinner, and I'm not going to call out any local restaurants, but I would rather go sit and experience chefs like yourself and Lisa who, I mean, El Cime and her pasta and then her seafood. I mean, what can't she cook? Right. right? Yeah. And I would rather go experience that support that mm-hmm. than I would something else. Yeah. And so to me, like it's, it's the whole, I think your niche is that special because it's, I mean, I can't do that every week. Right. You know? No, I mean, and, and that's the thing is we're not asking people to. Exactly. And um, and I think that for us that um, creates a little bit more uh, staying power because we're not asking people to come see us every single week or counting on it. So because our, our you know, our numbers are what they are. Uh, we're able to really dial in each dish and each week ideally make it even better. Mm. So I think that this model in particular, which uh, we will also be enhancing a little bit more in the, in the not too distant future um, 
is is completely sustainable. Um, and I think the the main reasons why is because of our dedication to the way that we source and the way that we cook and the way that um, we offer the experience to the diner. I yeah. mean, it's it, Lisa says it all the time. We're we're in the business of experiences. We're not here to just sell a meal. And you know, and I love that. Yeah, I, mean, I do too. And and so that's why it's very easy to want to work with someone like that. Yeah who is always considering um, the uh, the person sitting in the chair versus, you know, um, just, oh, well, what do I want to cook? Yeah. You know, you like chefs get on that kick a lot and they have to kind of ground themselves sure. in certain cases. And some people don't. Some people just want to be, you know, the avant-garde person and then just assume that at some point people are going to recognize their genius, mm. right? But um, I don't think that we suffer from that a lot in Tulsa. I think that we almost suffer from modesty, if I'm being honest. Not I almost. Um, you I, do. I, I feel like um, myself included, I've, I've always wanted kind of the food to talk and versus myself. And I never wanted to like, you know, sell myself as I'm this chef, I'm this whatever. Um, but with that being said, you know, um, you can't really afford to not uh, talk a big game anymore. Right. Because so many people nowadays who aren't professional cooks talk about all the things that they're doing and then you don't, it's like, well, what are you doing? Exactly. Are you doing anything if you're not really talking about it? So, yeah. I mean, I think I am. If I'm working <laughs> I'm 40, pretty sure 40 to 50 hours a week doing this, that, and the other, or researching or, you know, the 180 cookbooks that I have or whatever, you know, that are constantly on our dinner table mm -hmm. at the end of the night. It's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I, I feel like we are changing as, um, you know, as far as societal norms and, you know, yeah. social media and all that stuff. But um, I think that I welcome that because it gives us so much more information. And I feel like you have to really be special to be great nowadays. Mm. Did you ever see the movie A Beautiful Mind? Uh, with Russell Crowe? Mm -hmm. I have not. Okay. So there's this scene in there where... He's at the chalkboard and he's working on this equation. And it's the one of the, my favorite cinematic shots in like any movie mm -hmm. because all of a sudden, like the characters that he's writing start coming off the board and they're like floating around his head and they're interacting and they're doing all these things. Sure. That to me is the mind of a chef mm. when he sits down or she sits down and reads a cookbook. Right. And you see something's like, oh, well, if I apply that to this and then I could do this with that and then that with it. And then it just becomes this whole like immersive experience as you're sitting there you're and then wrong. it's three hours later and you're like, Oh, right. Oh, I've been taking four pages of notes. Right. What I do you mean, know? It's, it's not, it's, it's definitely not. I mean, it's, it's pretty similar if I'm being honest <laughs> with you, because we also are terrible at staying on one track. Right, right. So, you know, to figure out if I believe the, uh, plot of the story is he turns out to be crazy. Right. To be perfectly honest, it's been so long since I've seen the movie. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm also not going to ruin it for you if I did know. So you'll just have to watch right, it. Right. I'll just have to watch yeah. it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, things flying around your head. You all, I mean, we, there are so many chefs that you can talk to um, or cooks or whatever that, w that have so many cookbooks, but have only actually followed a recipe in any cookbook a dozen times, half a dozen times. And I'm one of them. Mm. I, I take these things. Well, you're not a recipe person. Um, I take these things and I use them as inspiration and I try to figure out how to apply them, not just over the dish that I'm trying to configure now, but also for the future. Yeah. How could I take this? And again, it's, it's, I mean, honestly, 
we all learned this. Every chef in the world really, really started to, we'd all talked about technique and law technique and, and all these things. We started really looking at that whenever uh, Jacques Pepin was famous, became famous in what America. What a fun name to say. He's Jacques Pepin. He's the, he is an he's American treasure. Yeah. Um, but um, we really started focusing on that a, a lot more whenever he came on the scene because he was all about the technicality side. But the people who exploded that was uh, was Ferran and Albert Adria at Al Bouilly, and they were the ones who were like, "We're not coming up with recipes. We're coming up with techniques mm. that can be applied to anything in the world." So we wanted to make this, you know, a technique uh, that will create a uh, a frozen sandwich that turns to smoke in your mouth. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. they can apply that to any liquid and just make it whatever it is, but they decided they wanted to go for a cocktail. And so you eat this thing that looks like a baguette sandwich and it is frozen with liquid nitrogen and it comes out of your nose and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is incredible. Yeah. They could do that with anything in the world. And so they were like, we we are technique driven and we can apply that across the board. And I feel like when that happened, so many people tried to figure out how to um, make a facsimile of that mm -hmm. as, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And then you have those people who do, you know, a starch, a meat, a veg, a sauce, and then microgreens in the middle in a giant pile. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's completely fine. You if that's do the you, kind boo. of food you want right? to make, that's yeah. entirely fine. And I'm sure it is delicious at some point. But the fun about getting to cook the way that we do is that we get to really um, overanalyze things. And we get to think about not just an ingredient in its uh, form as it is but what we can do to manipulate it and not necessarily make it look or seem like anything else, but how to use its biggest potential. Mm. Um, say, you know, the creaminess of eggplant, the acidity, the savoriness at the same time of tomato, it's gelin qualities. It's, you know, um, certain, you know, lean meats versus things that take a long time to braise. Why do they take a long time to braise? And, you know, can we get around that and cook that like a lean meat? Mm. So can we take a whole brisket and then take all the connective tissue out of it and cook that as though it were a steak on a grill? I mean, yeah, yeah, you can. You could do that. You certainly can. Sounds delicious. Yeah, no, yeah. it would be. Um, so we sprinted past the hour mark. I'm going to wrap up with this. Yep. Ooh, this is a tough question. Okay. I'm just going to prep you. This, this is one of those open it. You don't need any more bourbon. You're good. <laughs> It'll just delay the answer or expound, expound on the answer or whatever. Um, in your opinion, what type of cuisine or type of cooking is next for Tulsa as far as expanding our culinary palate as a city? Is there something that you think we don't have or we don't have enough of that will take us, not maybe not to the next level, but mm -hmm. just continually you know, take us towards being known as a culinary city? Um, I do. And I hope that it's, it's kind of a, a an open-ended question, obviously. But in my opinion, the, I hope the next thing for gastronomy in America, period, is looking past Southern comfort food as America's roots and finding the root of those ingredients where they truly came from. I was talking to Christina about this the other day. Yeah, explain that for me. We don't have, uh, especially like very few, if any, and if there are, are some, I would love to hear where they're coming from. 
but um, uh, restaurants that are rooted in Africa. Mm-hmm. We always have these French restaurants and everybody's very quick to latch on to European cuisine because the French are the pinnacle, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then the Danes and the English and the Spanish and the Italians and the Belgians and all these different people took what they wanted to from that cuisine because it became, uh, you know, the the prominent flavors and the way that we should cook because it focused the, the most on uh, agriculture mm. and it focused the most on, um, you know, a revering a product versus uh, just feeding someone. So I feel like that approach being applied in different areas is what has always been the next big thing. Um, obviously, we, I mean, we just had a Scandinavian restaurant open here in Tulsa. And Which is delicious, by good. the way. Yeah. Uh, we need more delicious restaurants here. 100%. And, um, but with that being said, the thing that I feel like we, there's such a lack of, not just in Oklahoma, because generally speaking in Oklahoma, we're it's safe to say we're behind about six to eight to sometimes 10 years on certain things. That's safe. Um, Which is unfortunate, but you know, that's the speed that we're in. I don't know if that'll always be the case. Maybe it will. I don't think so. I, I, but my hope is the second and third generation of the people who came here and they are working on the, 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 all the, they're, they're basically, Following, I don't know if coattails is the right phrase, but basically their their parents or grandparents had to work so hard to get here and make a success of themselves or mm. make their family feel successful in the situation they were able to, to um, create. And all that hard work is going to be the, um, the, the fuel that generations after them need to celebrate them as, in a resounding way. And I hope that it's not just um, your restaurants that are already opened here. Like, you know, we have a, a few great Indian places and, and we have um, lots of great Mexican food, especially on the east side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can sit there and talk about different nationalities, but I feel like the thing that we're lacking so much of is, I mean, if you think about Europe or Mexico and then you think about the, the size of Africa, and the amount of different regional cuisines that could possibly be there and the food that we don't get to taste because we're not cooking it here. They're not good. Like no one is cooking it here. Yeah. It's um, you're right. A good African restaurant, African cuisine in general. It's, it's just, it's something that I am so far removed from that I would love to see and learn more from. Mm-hmm. And it's just so hard because so many people that are here of, you know, of African descent, it's hard to learn their lineage because right. of obviously, um, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Our, our awful past. But with that being said, I, I feel like the greatest things and the way that we can share our culture in the most immediate way is through cuisine. Um, I would love to see more Native American chefs mm-hmm. step into the spotlight as well because of our region, obviously, me being Native American, but also wanting to learn more. Um, we get to teach people every time we present a plate. We mm. get to teach them either a bit of history or uh, a bit of agriculture or um, you know, regionality or you know, seasonality, so many different things. I feel like you can really learn so much through a plate of food um, in the right context. And so yeah. when we're talking about those places that are, you know, serving a starch and a meat and microgreens, it's like 
is that a story? Is that a story on a plate? No, it's food. And and that's again kind of goes back to the way that that I get to cook right now. That's why I'm so says what that is. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. it's a means to an end. Right. Um, which makes me so excited to get to go to work is that you know we get to uh, promote all these people and we get to tell a story on a plate that started from a, a person looking over a seed catalog mm. in December of the year before, and they're planning their harvest and they're going through all this, but. Yeah, at the end of the day, I would love to see so much more from the the giant expanse that is uh, that continent. But I mean, you know, uh, I'm open for everything that's new. Sure. So um, a- anything that uh, you know, getting a new lens on uh, Mexican, even just you know something that we take so for granted. We as ha- far as- we've man, America in general yeah. probably has what an eighth of the depth of cuisine that mexico has to offer i i mean yeah if if, if uh, yeah because yeah, yeah. it's so different right right and it's people it's, think of yeah. tex-mex as mexican food it's like oh bro yeah and i mean it, like we talked about before every food has its place every food like you know you that those places are about getting butts and seats and what it is and there's a place for that mm-hmm. and it's fine and it's delicious yeah right it can be great and, but, it, and it can vary i mean it's convenient and it's there it's reliable yeah. But I mean, again, what we go back to is we're talking about experiences Mm -hmm. and we're talking about sharing an experience with someone and offering a story. They don't necessarily have to want to hear. We're not trying to beat anybody over the head with our story. But if you want to hear it, we're definitely going to tell it. Yeah. No restaurant in Africa has ever won a Michelin star, right? Michelin doesn't go to Africa. Michelin, uh, they they only go to certain cities. You can actually pay the Michelin guy. What about a James Beard Award? Any chef in Africa? Uh, Well, James Beard is uh, American only. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm sure there are. What I'm getting at is are there any awards that go to any good restaurant in Africa? Like I've never heard of one. I mean, honestly, the 50 best, they, the San Pellegrino's 50 best, uh, I believe there are a few restaurants in uh, South Africa that, Good. or Good. a couple that have made the list. But I mean, when you're talking about a continent that size, I know. I just, I now, can't. Now, granted, imagine. a lot of, there's probably not, in the majority of those countries in Africa, there's mm-hmm. probably not higher end restaurants. Maybe not. Pers- you know, would be my guess. And I could be totally wrong. Right. I admit that. But you would think South Africa and then like, you know, the Egypt area and like up there, mm-hmm. you know, you, you probably find more. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's, you know, there's definitely the the difference in, in uh, rural and urban communities. But yeah. I mean, there are, you know, there are huge cities that are un- that I feel like are going undiscovered. And I, I also think that. You know, we talk about us being years behind. Those lists are years behind. Oh, 100%. They're, they're just now awarding things to uh, Asian chefs and cooks that they should have been for decades, yeah. to South American and, and, and um, Central American chefs and cooks that they should have been mm. doing for decades because, I mean, the Michelin guys started in France. Yeah. And so it was very focused on that type of cuisine. If you were opening a French restaurant in the south of Spain, chances are they would probably go check it out. But if it wasn't, I mean, who's to say? So you really have to, again, that whole you can't afford to not sell yourself anymore. That's That's why. Very true. Yeah. Well, man, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Tell Lisa I said hello. When when can people come eat at Farm Bar? What's your schedule? So we are open for reservations from Wednesday through Saturday. Uh, We have two seatings on, or so we we have a seating on Wednesday and a seating on uh, Thursday. Those begin at 6. And we have two seatings each night on Friday and Saturday, one at 530 and one at 830. 
Those are all be inside the restaurant, and uh, we have uh, the bar seating as well. So mm. if you like to watch people cook and hear us talk and not try to curse, um, you know, you're free to to do that and uh, kind of see a little bit more behind the scenes, ask yeah. questions as it's being presented to you, be served by the chef um, herself. And so, yeah. Here's how to let Trey know you heard the podcast. Sit at the chef's table, bring like a bag of peanuts, and just throw them at him. You don't have to do that. Just occasionally. You just don't. One at a time. Who the fuck is throwing peanuts right. at me? No, my name's on the menu. You can just say hi. I mean, seriously. <laughs> that works too. Tucker yeah. Cena said hello. Nope. Love you, bro. Thanks Thank for you. coming on. See you next week on The Tasting Room. Take care.